are listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy, and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join, but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief, because all children leave footprints on our hearts. and welcome to episode 36 of Footprints on Our Hearts. In today's episode, I talk with Abby Bradley about her son, Lucas, who died just 12 days after birth in 2014. And Abby's experience was particularly horrific. I think a lot of us, you know, a lot of us, most of the shows I've done, we talk about children who died during pregnancy or perhaps who have been sick after birth. Um, and then sadly pass away later. But Lucas was for, you know, as far as anyone could see, a wonderful, healthy baby boy until he very suddenly fell sick. And not only did Abby have to go through the trauma of watching as hospital staff desperately try to save his life, but just a few hours after he died, um, she then had to deal with the police arriving to question them and having to hand over, you know, Lucas's clothes, which he'd been wearing and have their house and car and everything examined, um, which is part of the procedure when, you know, a baby or a person dies unexpectedly in the UK. But it just adds, I think, an extra dimension to that trauma and loss and shock that you're going through. So I'm really grateful to Abby for coming onto the podcast and being so honest with her experiences. Um, And I hope that there are people listening who can take some comfort for that if you've been in that same situation. Um, I haven't really got anything else for the intro today. I've just got to keep it short and sweet, really. But I did just want to mention, as it is the beginning of the month, um, that if you want to support the the podcast on Patreon, now is a great time to do it because you you get charged at the beginning of the month. So you can take a full month's worth of of benefits if you um, help support the podcast now. And there are various um, benefits available, including exclusive bonus content and blog posts, which I put on there just for Patreon supporters. You can get your baby's name listed in the Book of Remembrance and get a memory stick made. Um, So if that's something you're interested in, you want to help me keep the podcast going, you can support the podcast at patreon.com slash footprints on our hearts. And if you don't want to or you're not able to support the podcast financially, you can also support me by sharing the podcast with people you know, either in the baby loss community or outside the baby loss community, spreading the word and leaving me a nice rating or review on your podcast app. (laughs) I very much appreciate all those aspects of support. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Today I'm joined on the podcast by Abby, whose son Lucas died just 12 days after his birth in 2014. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast to share your story and Lucas's Abby. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's honestly a pleasure to be able to just share his story. I used to talk about it so much, but it's been six years now, so it's kind of been less and less as time's gone on, but it will be nice to share his story to people who might not have heard about him before. 
Fantastic. So let's crack right on and let's go back to the beginning. When did you and your husband first begin to start think about starting a family and how was your journey to getting pregnant with Lucas? Um, so we got married in May 2013 and to be honest since even before then I've always wanted a family so it's always been really quite important to us um, and we were quite lucky to be honest and I found out I was pregnant in September 2013. Um, we had a textbook pregnancy, everything was fine, um, we didn't find out the gender which was actually really lovely um, and then along came May which is when Lucas was born, he came, he was born on the 16th of May um yeah healthy well apparent as apparent as it could have been he was healthy and yeah um we were just over the moon to have a son and yeah it was wonderful we're in just such a lovely little bubble with him so it was nice oh I can imagine so yeah so you'd had textbook pregnancy so I guess you just had all the kind of normal sort of dating scan 20 that week was scan. It, yeah we all yeah. had the 12 week and the 20 week and yeah no problems so I think we had gone in once for reduced movements, um, very close to 40 weeks in the end, um, but everything was fine. And then he arrived um, maybe, I think, four or five days later. So, And did you ha- how was your birth experience with him? Was it a first birth can be a yeah, bit? Yeah, <laughs> it, it was quite long. Um, but looking back, it was actually probably, you know, it was nice, even though it was a long one. Um, but I managed to have a water birth, which was what I was hoping for. Um, yeah, so that was really lovely. Brilliant. And so so you brought him home. Um, and those first days and, you know, that week of being first-time parents must have been a bit of a whirlwind. What do you remember most about that period? Yeah, definitely. So we were actually allowed home quite soon. Um, he wasn't born until 20 to 12 on the Friday evening. Um, and they did sort of say to us, oh, you know, we'll keep you until the morning um, since it's quite late. And then we'll get you on your way sort of thing. Everything was fine. So I think it was like Saturday dinner time by the time we were coming home. Um, yeah, so we got home, obviously quite nervous, taking baby out of hospital and everything, as most new parents are. Um, but yeah, it was it was amazing. And we were quite lucky. All the family sort of rushed over to meet him, which at the time seemed quite intense because we'd, you know, we'd only just got back ourselves and it was a bit stressful. But Looking back now, obviously, I'm very glad that that happened. Otherwise, they may not have met him. So it was special. Um, But yeah, that first week we had, you know, everything seemed normal as to what normal would seem to first time parents who don't really have any experience of having a newborn baby. Um, (laughs) There's no such thing as normal, really, is that? (laughs) I mean, um, he had like a few issues where he didn't feed very, you know, it wasn't great at feeding. but midwives weren't worried, you know, he was checked probably three or four times, actually, in those 12 days. Um, and they weren't particularly worried until the day before he, di- day before he died and the day he died, which obviously I'll, I'll explain to you. Um, yeah. But yeah, so, you know, we were like blissfully unaware, really. Um, but now when I look back, that's so lovely because, you know, we we didn't have to worry about anything. Um, and we got those 11 days of just been so happy with him which is all I could have ever asked for so it was perfect. Yeah and so what happened the, the day before then um, you said the midwife raised some concerns. We had the I think it was the health visitor actually so they were sort of getting ready to um, sign off with the midwife ready for the health visitor to start coming um, so they came on day 11 
and um, he was just so cold that day. You know, he felt so cold, and we'd it wasn't cold outside or anything. We'd wrapped him right up, um, and you know, I, just, I was just cuddling him and things like that. And he, he came back around. You know, his temperature came back normal, and she just said, "You know, you've done all the right things. Nothing to worry about." And she she honestly had no concerns whatsoever. So to us, that was just like, oh, okay, you know, he might have just got a bit cold and, you know, he's he's fine again now. So, yeah, we didn't, after that, we kind of just carried on with our day, really, like, you know, just like we normally did. Yeah, and I guess, again, you know, it's your first experience of having a baby and babies have all these little things, you know, some, yeah. they lose weight after birth yeah. and sometimes they might be a bit colicky or, yeah. you know, you kind of just take things as they come, don't you, and, and sort it, yeah. of and deal I mean, with it. I think um, within that first week, the midwives had come one time and he'd put something like eight ounces on, which they were like, oh, they must have weighed him wrong last time, you know, or written it down wrong or they were just sort of, that was kind of what they thought. Um, and then we'd seen the midwives again the morning of the day he died um, and we went to visit them at the children's centre at the time which is where they were based um, and then by that point he'd lost that weight again so they were kind of thinking oh you know something obviously doesn't seem quite right but is it that it's just been written down wrong um, and the only thing they seemed concerned about that morning was that it was still quite jaundiced so they'd said oh we'll come and visit again um on Friday so this was the Wednesday um so we said well, you know we'll book you in again for Friday and if there's if we're still concerned obviously we'll just get him up to hospital to get checked over um so yeah we you know we did we'd been there I took him to work to visit my colleagues which was really wonderful um and we also had a hearing test for him that day at um Airedale hospital so we'd sort of we were kind of rushing around that morning we'd whiz here there and everywhere um got to Airedale Hospital for his hearing test, absolutely fine. They weren't concerned about his appearance or anything whatsoever. Um, and from there, we drove to Mothercare in Bradford. And from leaving Mothercare is when it all just started to change. Everything started to change. So, so can you talk us through what what happened? So you've been in Mothercare, done your shopping. Yeah, I guess. that's it. Um, yeah. I honestly can't couldn't even tell you what we'd been for now I've no idea <laughs> um but yeah we so we'd come out of mother care and put him in his car seat and he was just so he was crying but it wasn't like a normal cry but um we just sort of thought oh you know we, he might not like the car very much because he had sort of cried whilst he'd been in the car before um so we set off anyway we'd probably driven five minutes or so and it was still the same so we stopped to feed him um in a car park but he wouldn't feed whatsoever um and his cry was just, it was really, it was more like the sound of a distressed animal than anything else, rather than a cry. Um, so my husband said, no, I think we need to ring the doctors. Um, and, the, you know, the part of me was just like, oh, but it's not even registered there yet. They won't, you know, they won't be able to see him or anything, but they were brilliant. And we got straight in as an emergency appointment. Um, so, yeah, we'd sort of whizzed straight there five minutes later. Um and as soon as they saw him, they knew something was, wasn't right. Um, so his temperature was really low. It was only 34. And his oxygen levels were really low too. Um, so straight away, they put him on oxygen. And within minutes, the ambulance arrived. So we got blue lighted to the hospital. Um, and within, it was, it's as if I knew, like looking back now, I kind of just stepped away and I couldn't really 
you know, be involved. So I said to the ambulance, oh, you know, you can lie on the bed and hold him. It's fine. Like, as long as he's, you know, still got his oxygen mask on and everything like that, it's absolutely fine for you to hold him. And I just, I just couldn't do it. I was just like, no, I can't. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. It's kind of, looking back, I think it's like I knew and I was just protecting myself from it um, in a sense. So, yeah, we we were sent straight into resource and they'd sort of prepped us on the way saying, we're going to go straight into resuscitation. There's going to be a lot of people there. Um, So yeah, just to be aware, it's going to be very busy and a bit hectic, but you can sort of leave and go into a little room if you want, or you can sort of hang around. It's completely up to you. And had they, had they given you any indication as to what they thought might be wrong with him? Absolutely nothing at that moment. Um, like I say, it was just the only symptoms at that time were a low temperature and low oxygen. So they didn't know. Um, but yeah, so we'd arrived at hospital um, and there was just so many, honestly, so many people around him um, doing all these things. And I remember one nurse sort of like pulling us to a side and saying, you know, he's really poorly. Um, so he's probably going to have to be transferred to um, LGI in Leeds. Because um, they've got a more specialist children's unit, which and baby unit, um, where it can be cared for. So at that point, we were sort of like, right, okay, um, you know. But then, as I kept looking over, it was, you know, the heart monitor were going down, down, down. Um, and my husband found it really difficult, so he'd sort of gone out for a little while and came back, and they'd said to me, "Oh, do you mind helping, Mum?" So I'd like helped to hold his arm while they did the cannula and things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, they just struggled so much, and it. Some of the most distressing things was they had to drill into his bones in his legs to get fluid in, and I just stood and watched oh them goodness. do that to my new baby. And yeah, that's probably one of the worst memories I've got. I think. Yeah, I can't. Well, I can't even imagine yeah. how how hard it must have been just to see that. Yeah, and obviously they're so busy; they don't have time to tell you what they're even doing. So. You know, I was just like, what are you doing to my baby? But, the, you know, they were so, trying so hard to help him that they just couldn't, you know, even tell me. Um, so that was really traumatic. Um, and then once I'd helped them do that, I kind of just kept looking over and I just said, I need to just, I need to come out. I can't watch anymore, which, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, it upsets me now thinking I wasn't there with him, you know, but it's what I needed to do at the time. So... Yeah. Yeah. And there's nothing there's nothing that you can do for him at that point. No, like everyone else it. is trying to save him, yeah. you know, and you just have to trust in it, don't you? You know, you kind of felt in the way because there's just so many people trying to help, which is obviously amazing, you know. We're so lucky to have the NHS and everything like that. It's just so yeah. Um we'd sort of gone off into this room and it was the most tiny room ever. <laughs> um and so um, a consultant came in at one point and said, you know, we really are doing everything we can, but it's not really looking like we can do very much. You know, they were like, he's breathing, but the monitor, everything we're doing is making him breathe. It's, mm-hmm. He can't do it himself. Um, so that was quite hard. But I think by that point, we sort of knew, it. you know, we knew it was, that's what was going to happen. And then he probably came back a few minutes later. I don't think it was long um, and just said, um we've had to switch the monitor off and I'm afraid he's he's gone so yeah mm-hmm. yeah just like I say I think we knew but hearing those words are a complete different story you know so yeah yeah and I think as you say you know so 
part of you might know that inside, but there's yeah. also part of you which is still holding on to that That's hope, it. isn't it? Yeah. And is denying yeah. it. Hundred percent. Yeah. Um, and it's those it's those words that are so final. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. That's it. So you know, it was like we've done absolutely everything we could have done to help him. Mm. We don't really we don't know what's caused this um they had absolutely no idea basically and obviously we didn't either um so yeah it was it was tough but he said um you know we've we've sorted them all out and wrapped him up and if you want to come out you can come and hold him um my husband didn't really know how to feel about that at the time but straight away I was like I have to pick him up Mm -hmm. um we kind of we walked back in and he was just laid wrapped in an orange blanket on this metal slab and it was just I thought, you can't just leave him there, you know. Um, And my poor husband had rung family to tell them what had happened and they came, which was really nice. Um, We were quite lucky, really. Did you get taken to a separate room or to the bereavement suite? Um, Well, because we'd gone into the main hospital, into resuscitation, um, nobody even mentioned anything. You know, there was no mention of going into any sort of suite or... Um, I didn't even know what a cold cot was until yeah. a few months after he died. They didn't tell us anything, which looking back is obviously really disappointing. But at the time, we we did the best of the situation that we could have. So we were in this tiny room. It was so small and red hot. Um, and some of our family came to see us and be with us. And um, my best friend was there too, which my family had asked her to come. And even to this day, I just think I don't know how she did it. <laughs> So, yeah, bless her. That was amazing. So, um, but yeah, and even following on from that was a, you know, there was a lot of traumatic things. So because it was a, a sudden infant death, mm-hmm. the police have to come. Um, so the police came, which obviously when you're holding your dead child, you don't expect a policeman to come and walk in and say, we need to check your car, we need to check your house to see if you've done anything that's contributed to his death. Yeah, how soon was that? After? Um, so you must—you were still at the hospital at yeah, that point. We were, yeah, yeah. Um, I, pro- I couldn't really tell you. Maybe an hour, maybe a few hours. I'd probably Gosh. say. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and I understand. You know, I—I I totally get why they have to do it, but that is the last thing you expect to see. You know. Um, so my dad went and um, showed them like the car at the doc- The car was still at the doctor's, so they did that and checked the house and everything. And obviously, everything was fine. Um, but they had to take his clothes as well that he was wearing that day. Um, and that, yeah, I struggled with that a lot, that they had to take mm. all his things. Because you kind of don't, you know, you, you don't want to wash anything or do let anyone do anything to them because it's sort of the last things you've got of what he last wore, you know. Um, so, And they've mentioned memory making, but they didn't particularly involve us in anything which again mm. is quite disappointing. I think they did ask if we wanted to change, like dress him. So my dad had brought back the sleep suit that he wore when he was born. We said it'd be nice for him to go back into the first one he ever wore. So that's what we did. And they did ask us to dress him, but I think I was just, I just couldn't do it. Um, but yeah, and yeah, it was tough. I mean, you're just in complete shock at that, that point. Yeah, I that's mean, it. and and I think you know, particularly with your kind of situation, so. You know, a lot of the people I talk to have perhaps been through stillbirths where, yeah. you know, you you kind of maybe have a day or, you you know, you at least have some time while you're in labour yeah. to yeah. to almost 
you know you don't necessarily come to terms with it and in a sense you're still in shock but but you know what's happening you know what's yeah. going on um whereas you've literally gone in a matter of hours from having a perfectly healthy that's it perfect baby boy yeah. to you know not just losing him but having all this chaos and things yeah, going on around that. you yeah and, and yeah and I, I do wonder I wonder if because as you say, you were in that separate part of the hospital. So obviously, if you, you know, if you're in the kind of with the, the midwives, and again, if it's something around birth or sort of shortly after birth, then they kind of know how to, you know, they know what the process is That's and they, they have the yeah. facility there and the yeah. memory box and, and to deal with it. Whereas you must have been so isolated in this. Yeah, sort of um, yeah, it really was. And one thing which I'll also never forget is that in the room opposite, another baby had died on the same day. Wow. Um, what are the chances, you know? Like, you just yeah. can't, at the time, we were just thought, like, how has this even happened? Um, so, yeah, and, I mean, we did get a memory box, and it's lovely, you know? They did his hand and footprints. It had a little poem in, a lock of his hair. Um, but yeah, I mean, at the time, obviously, to us, that was absolutely amazing when we brought ourselves around to look at it. Mm. But now that I know there's so much what actually happens in, you know, hospital, in especially in like, you say a lot of hospitals have their own suites where you can go, um, which the hospital where Lucas was born do have those facilities. Um, but because of where we live, our actual closest hospital is Bradford Royal Infirmary. Um, but we'd chosen not for him to be born there. Um, so, yeah, it it's a shame. But the time we did have with him was what was best at the time. And, you know, um, we made the decision to leave him. I think so. I think he died around half past four in the afternoon. Um, and around 11 o'clock, we thought we need to, you know, have think about what we're going to do sort of thing. Because, like I say, we had no idea about cold cots. So if we'd have known that, I think things could have been a lot different. Um, but we kind of felt rushed, like we had to go. Yeah. You know? um, so, yeah, that was hard. We kind of felt pushed out in a sense. Um, yeah, which was tough. Yeah, and again, I guess from the medical perspective this is you know you've come into an emergency room and these are yeah. kind of facilities and they're you know again they're not they're not geared up for for that kind of bereavement stage almost no. are they no, and, definitely and not people to kind of stay there and spend time and that's so that's really sad that you yeah that you weren't given that option or given yeah that option. I think because we were so aware that both rooms were occupied we we're thinking oh but mm. what if someone else comes along and you know you you think about all these things don't you um so yeah we did feel rushed which was a shame but the time we did have with him I I think I only let him go when they took him to change him and things um and Mm -hmm. before we decided to go um my husband held him up on his chest because that's where he loved being so we sort of just did that and cuddled him and then we asked the nurse to come and take him away because we didn't want to feel like we were leaving him um but yeah getting taken away was probably the worst thing yeah and then and again you know a lot of the people I talk to on the podcast may go home from hospital to an empty house a house that you know perhaps has a nursery waiting for their baby but a house that's never actually had their baby in it whereas for you Lucas must have been everywhere his presence you know the his bed clothes his clothes that you hadn't washed how how did you deal with that and how were those early kind of 
weeks and days and weeks and when you came home that was something that we'd really thought about whilst we were still with him in the hospital like I said we'd had a bit of a manic morning that day anyway so stuff was just everywhere at home um you know we had everything out everywhere um but yeah we made the decision to go and stay with my um husband's parents so that's what we did we went home with them they just took us to their house and I think that was probably the best thing we could have ever done to be honest Mm. um so I think we stayed there for about a week in the end um and then we said no you know I think we need to at least I think what we did was we said we're gonna go home but we're sort of gonna go for an hour and then just come away again and that's what we did so um but I, I'm not sure who it was, but someone came up to our house to sort of move a few things into the nursery um, just so there wasn't everything everywhere, um, which was quite good, really. Um, so, yeah, we came home and that was obviously horrendous, coming home to an empty house after thinking, oh, last week we were, you know, just coming home with our new baby. Um, but, yeah, it was, yeah, that was tough. But the day after he died was also very traumatic for us um I mean just waking up the next day I mean you know yourself you kind of think oh was it a bit of a you know was it a nightmare and then you wake up to the nightmare um yeah so we were at my parent-in-law's house um but when you have um a sudden death in a baby they have to have the death review panel come to speak to you oh my goodness I went and that was how soon was that the day after the day after but they don't even give you any time to kind of come to terms with that and is that is that is that kind of part of it I don't know yeah apparently so um yeah I was really shocked um but yeah they have to come and basically they just asked us you know a kind of similar to this really like you know talking about everything from pregnancy to the birth to everything we did on each day he was here um until he died um so we're just sort of gathering information about everything that we've done with him and things like that and then they take that away um and then they hold a meeting with all sorts of different professionals um to sort of just gather information on whether you know it was anything suspicious or if it's something which is just you know one of them things and like I say I think it probably didn't help that there was no cars that they found at the time um yeah. because they literally had no idea so and did you and how did uh, apart from obviously the you know these people coming and questioning you and the the trauma of that and having to go over things did you feel kind of under suspicion or like yeah I mean I, I mean especially so when the police turned up you kind of just think what but um yeah with these people that came and they were lovely you know that I can't even imagine having to do that job I honestly think that so many times. I don't know how we do it. Um, But it was in more of a relaxed environment because we were at my parent-in-law's. So, you know, that was nicer in a sense. But, yeah, you you know, they're asking you just so many questions about everything you've ever done with him. And, yeah, it was very strange. Um, And I guess you must be also, you know, mentally going – well, was there anything, you know, was there anything that I did and kind of playing over everything in your head? I feel like I did that a lot once they'd sort of gone, you know, like it's kind of opening a can of worms, isn't it, when they come and ask you all these questions, then you start thinking, oh, well, what, you know, was there something that we might have done that's, you know, you just don't know, do you? Um, But, yeah, and also that day the doctor who saw him the day before who called the ambulance came to see us, um, but he brought some tablets for my milk supply to stop 
which is possibly the worst thing, you know. Um, I've I've known a few people have mentioned that on here before, um, but yeah, that was tough. And I I imagine he had to have a post mortem because of how sudden his death was. So did you find out a reason? Yeah, so we did. It took um, nearly five months for us to get any sort of answers, and. Um, within that time, you know, even they were contacting us a lot saying, you know, we've not found anything yet, but we've, you know, we've sent more tests to different places um, just to try and find some sort of answers. Anyway, so we did find out why in the end. Um, and he had persistent um, pulmonary hypertension of the newborn, which basically is something which is usually onset from if they get sepsis or meningitis or something like that. Um, but they found no reason for it in Lucas. So they call it an idiotic version, which sounds ridiculous, of pulmonary hypertension of the newborn. But it basically means that they don't know why um, it happens. So obviously, if they were to get that from sepsis or meningitis and they were treated for those conditions, then obviously that, you know, that would be fine and it, it you know, makes them better. But there was nothing they could have done for him they said even if we'd have known from when he was born he would have needed a heart and lung transplant which the chances of that in a baby are just slim to none um and we would have been in hospital the whole time if we knew from when he was born so you know when we found that out obviously it was really hard to hear but we just said we had 12 days well 11 days of him being at home we were so unaware blissfully unaware of everything and it was just the most incredible time and how, you know, as awful as the situation has been, like we can be nothing but grateful for that. that mm. They didn't spot it in hospital at the time because we would have been robbed from all the memories we've we managed to create with him and our families. So, yeah, that's something that I try and cling on to when I'm having a bad day, you know, mm. um, just remembering all the time we did have because it could have been very different. Yeah. And although obviously his those kind of moments and minutes kind of leading up to his death were incredibly traumatic, he wasn't in that situation of being poked and prodded every day and having blood taken and, you know, all those kind of things, yeah. which I guess could have happened. Yeah. And they did say, he, you know, I think it was um, Leicester Hospital that said, so the, I mean, you know, that's nowhere near where we live, yeah. um, which would have been horrendous. So, yeah, we're in the worst situation we've been very lucky that's how I like to think of it um yeah and did you find any particular sources of support that helped you through those first weeks and months yeah um so we were given a lot of leaflets and things like that um but the at the time so it was back in 2014 when Lucas died and obviously at the moment there's a lot on Instagram, there's a big community and everything like that, but there wasn't really anything like that back then. Um, but I'd heard of the Sands Forum and someone else um, had mentioned it to me as well. So I thought, I, I'm going to go on it. I was a bit sceptical um, at the time, but I thought, no, I'll go on it. And for probably a week or so, I just spent time like reading people's posts on there um, I, until I could pluck up the courage to write one myself. I guess it kind of feels worse when you have to either write or say that your baby's died. Like, you know, it's bad enough thinking it, isn't it? But when you have to sort of say it out loud or anything like that, I struggled with that for quite a while. Um, so, yeah, I think I kind of put off 
sort of interacting on there. Um, but I think it was the day after his funeral, I finally plucked up the courage to post on there. And the first person I spoke to, um, she'd also been through a neonatal death too. Whereas a lot of people you kind of come across and hear of throughout baby loss is the majority are stillbirths. Um, so it was quite nice to find someone who I could really relate to because we'd been through a similar situation. Um, so yeah, that was really, really helpful. And I've honestly met so many friends, you know, the lifelong friends now, the people who we spoke to on the Sands Forum at the time. Um, and they, I can't even tell them how much they helped me through those early weeks. They really did. They really, really did. Um, so you now have two daughters. I Emmy do, yeah. And Esme. Yeah. yeah. How, how was your experience of being pregnant with Emmy following Lucas's death? I mean, the first, when we first started saying, oh, do you think we should try again? Just the amount of guilt that sets in is just unbelievable. Because you just think to yourself, how can we want another baby when, our, you know, our baby's just died? We know it's not ever going to replace him. and But it's just that you have empty arms, you know. Um, so, yeah, we'd kind of spoken about that in probably the August time, I think. Um, and... We had planned to go away to Australia in the October to stay with some friends over there. And I think that's when things started getting a little bit easier for me um, in general, to be honest. And, yeah, we'd, we had um, three weeks there and we'd visited Bali in between. And then we came home and I did think that I was pregnant when we got back, um, but it was negative. Um, and that was horrendous in itself, you know, because you kind of get your hopes up again and yeah it was that was a bit stressful but probably a month after that we found out that we were expecting Emmy um yeah the emotions are a bit crazy aren't they you go from one minute of being being um excited grateful to um you know oh my god how is this happening again um so yeah I mean I personally found it quite a nice time and I it's really funny. I kind of feel like the time before I was pregnant is such a separate time to the time when I got pre found out I was pregnant. It's kind of like it's just split. I don't. It's really tough to describe, really. Um, but yeah, my husband struggled a lot with it in them first weeks. I think it was until after we'd had our first scan, um, and we didn't get an early scan or anything like that, um, even though we'd asked for one but um, they wouldn't give us one. So it was still the 12-week scan. Um, and, yeah, he just found it really tough to sort of get his head around it, I think, more than anything. Um, and we'd also not told our family for quite a few weeks because we decided we wanted to tell them at Christmas because it was quite near Christmas. Um, so I think that in itself was hard because we had no one to talk to, you know, which probably wasn't the best thing looking back. But... It was nice for Christmas to be able to say, you know, it was our first Christmas without Lucas. So it kind of just brought a bit of hope to the day and a bit of happiness um, amongst all the sadness for everybody. So, yeah, it was nice. And again, my pregnancy was quite textbook, I'd say. But um, we were consultant led and we had to be sent to um, Leeds to get a specialist heart scan. Um, so that's what they'd sort of put in place for us to have um, in any like pregnancies we go through now and um, to have a heart scan around 18 weeks. And it's just to check for any abnormalities. And we were it was fine and her heart was fine. But, the, the you know, they say to you, it doesn't mean 
that it won't happen again. It looks fine now, but that doesn't mean it will be at the time. So obviously it was a relief, but then you're relieved for probably a day and then you go back into the being absolutely terrified again. Um, yeah, it was a very scary time, a very scary nine months, I have yeah. to say. And did you have any other kind of later scans or or anything else? They decided to do growth scans. So I think it was from um, 28 weeks. We had them four weekly. So we had like 28, 32, 36. And then I, I pushed to be induced as well because I think, you know, once you've your baby's died and you you speak to other people and you hear about their experiences, the amount of people are knew who had been overdue and then that you know links to stillbirth it just the thought of anything going wrong absolutely terrified me um so I pushed for an induction um which they accepted eventually but then she came on her own did Emmy <laughs> she obviously was like no I'm not having any of this I'm coming when I'm ready <laughs> yeah um so yeah we were quite lucky in that sense and the hospital were amazing after she was born we Stayed in for three days. Um, we got taken into neonatal and they did loads of checks on her. Um, they gave us a breathing monitor for her to take home. Um, I think it's called the Coney Scheme, actually, in hospital. Um, and I'm not sure if every hospital sort of offers it. Um, but, yeah, um, and we got to watch. They taught us about first aid and everything like that. Um, on babies which was really useful actually um so yeah we felt really well looked after and we had more midwife appointments after we'd left the hospital and then I saw a health visitor every single week after that point um up until she was probably nine months I think um so yeah I it was really nice it was good yeah and I guess even with that those first few weeks when you brought her home it must have been especially difficult um were you able to relax and enjoy that time with her or were you sort of feeling constantly on edge we were very on edge I have to say um obviously we were so conscious that we had to enjoy that time because what if it happened again which is not what you should be thinking but (laughs) Yeah. um, yeah so we were really like aware that we needed to enjoy all the time that we did have in them first few weeks and you know looking back we did but it was terrifying at the same time um but the hospital were really good and they'd arranged for the midwives to come I think they came three days in a row on day 11 12 and 13 Mm -hmm. just to get us through that period of time um and you know she's absolutely fine so it was just but yeah very traumatic to just get through that time I think you know that was in a sense probably one of the hardest parts of being pregnant after losing him them first few weeks just thinking but what if it happens again you know so because yeah again as you say like you know a lot of pregnancy after loss you kind of the sort of birth is your that's that's the, the goalpost yeah. you are yeah. aiming for and you get beyond that and you probably don't relax totally but you there there is some relaxing whereas for you that was almost the starting point yeah. of <laughs> yeah I feel like it was actually yeah when you put it like that it definitely was so yeah those first 12 days were really tough but um also wonderful at the same time and you know we just felt so lucky that we'd been able to get pregnant again and I know so many people who struggled to get pregnant after losing the babies and I just can't even imagine how hard that must be um but yeah we were lucky um 
But then when Emmy turned one, we decided we were going to try again because we wanted them quite close together. Um, and I fell pregnant in the October, um, but then I found out in November that I'd had a miscarriage. Uh, so that was really tough to get yeah. through. It was an early miscarriage, um, but, I, you know, it's hard because you, you don't expect that nothing else could go wrong, but, you you know, it was a bit of a shock. Um, so, yeah, that was hard to get through. Um, and then I think it was the March when we found out we were pregnant again with Esme. Um, and her pregnancy went well until a bit later on. Um, so we had another heart scan again, and that was absolutely fine. Um, but then once they started doing the growth scans, they noticed that she was quite small. Um, so the growth scans were then moved to every two weeks, which is like the shortest time period they say that you should have them done, yeah. Um, so she had quite a small head, and they just said she was generally small. So that was like another worry on top of everything else and something that I'd kind of never had to even worry about before, in a sense, um, which was quite stressful. And in that pregnancy, we'd kind of, even though we are consultant-led, it was a bit of a, a strange time. They kind of used someone different for every appointment, which really like stressed me out, to be honest, because the amount of times you have to go in and explain all your history to someone new again and, you know, they don't know what you've been through, um, that's traumatic in itself half of the time. Um, so, yeah, I'd kind of mentioned that um, and we got past that. Um, and then, again, they booked me in to be induced just to keep more of a close eye on her um, with her being small. Um, but they managed to just pop my waters that time and then she was born five hours later. Um, but when she was, when I was in labour, her heart rate really slowed down and I, I just completely felt like I lost sight of, you know, everything that was happening around me at the time. So that was really, really hard. Um, but she was fine, you know, she was born healthy and she was small, but nothing to be overly concerned about. Um, so the girls also both had scans on their hearts after they were born. They had like an ultrasound. Um, and Esme does have a hole in her heart, but they do say it's very common. Um, most babies obviously don't get scans to show that, but a lot of them do have holes anyway. Um, so, yeah, um, she's been checked again when she was one and the hole was still there. So they just say, you know, we'll bring you back when she's five. And sort of go from there. But they're not overly concerned, which is quite a relief. But it's always there in the back of your mind, niggling away. But, yeah, they're both brilliant. So we're very lucky. Yeah. And I think that sort of the thing with gray scans is that, that some babies are just small. Like, genetically, yeah. they are just small babies. But, again, once you've, you know, once you've been through all this thing, it's it's just an additional worry, isn't it? That, 100%, yeah. yeah. So we're now about six years on from when Lucas died. What's been the hardest part of parenting after loss for you over the last sort of five years? So I feel like the toughest part for me, which it kind of highlighted with Emmy, although she was never really very poorly within that first year. She wasn't often poorly, but Esme got poorly quite a few times and my anxiety was through the roof. I, I, every time she got poorly, I was just adamant that something was going to happen to her. Um, and that was really, really hard to work through, actually. Um, yeah, I often thought something was going to go wrong. Um, and, you know, she she got through it every time. Um, she's had, like, chest infections and things like that. But we've been to hospital numerous times with her, um, which was quite 
traumatic in itself, I suppose. Um, so after all that, and then on that same year, we'd hit the milestone of Lucas when he should have started school. And that is, and I know a lot of people are going through that right now. And I honestly, my heart goes out to them because for me, that was one of the most horrendous milestones to get through. And I, I think I was so unprepared for it. I kind of, you know, you know, it's coming, you know, when they would have gone to school, but I never really thought too much into it. And then the time came and it was just, it just took me back so much. Um, you know, I probably never felt that much grief since those early days, um, which was a really big shock for me. Um, and it, you know, everything that had sort of led up to that point of all the like anxiety of Esme being poorly a few times throughout that year. And then that, um, I thought I need to start looking at any sort of support. Um, we'd kind of never reached out for support before. My husband had done a few counselling sessions, which really helped him. Um, but at the time, I just was, I was using sands every day and, you know, that was really helping me. So at that point, I kind of felt okay in a sense. Um, and I think then I'd concentrated so much on getting pregnant again and being pregnant. And then, you know, then we had another pregnancy. You're constantly focusing on something. And then after Esme, it was like I've got nothing else to kind of focus on now. And, yeah, it that time, it really took me back to that. Um, so I got in touch with someone to see a therapist just to sort of see what options I had and what she recommended for me. Um, so I'd gone for a session and she said, you know, everything is like linking to PTSD. Um, and she said, it's obviously not surprising from what we went through at the hospital with Lucas. So, um, we decided to do some EMDR therapy, which I'd never heard of before. What is that? Tell us. <laughs> it's for um, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Oh. So basically, when something traumatic happens, it just sort of gets put in place in your brain somewhere. Like your brain, because your brain doesn't know it's going to happen, it can't be processed as a memory because it's not a memory. It's just something that's happened and it's got nowhere to go. Um, and that's why you're always having flashbacks and all those types of things that PTSD is linked to. Um, so what they do is they basically talk through what they make you talk through everything that's happened and you slowly build up to like the worst part of the trauma for you. Um, and you constantly go over and over and over and over what has happened. Um, and they basically, they leave a hold something in front of you and they move it from side to side like this. And your eyes just basically have to follow it as you're talking. Um, and then they'll just stop. And while they're doing this, while you're talking about it, but moving your eyes, it helps your brain process all this trauma into a memory. So it slowly processes it into a memory. Um, so I think I had five sessions in total of that. And honestly, it is the most amazing thing I've ever done. I I, I was very sceptical at the start because it sounds very bizarre. Um, and I just thought, how can this actually work? Um, and I remember reaching out on Instagram before I started it to see if anyone else had like been through it or done it and someone I remember someone commenting saying it worked amazingly for them and that they felt like um they were now looking at that time seeing themselves but it was as if there was frosted glass in front of them so that they weren't quite in that anymore but they could see it and it wasn't you know 
it's really hard to explain, but that is generally how it feels. Um, you know, like when you've got your flashbacks, you, you're there, you're right there back in that moment. But it's as if now we've like taken a step back and you can kind of still oversee it and everything. Um, but yeah, it really, really helped. And since then, things have been a lot easier for me, which, yeah, I, I'm 100% like glad that I did do that. It was really hard. Those first two sessions, she told me, you know, they're going to be really tricky, like really hard for you to work through and everything like that. But yeah, it was 100% worth it. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that's definitely a sort of form of therapy that I haven't heard of before. So it's really fascinating to, to hear that and how it worked. And what, what kind of awareness do your girls have then of their big brother and how do you involve him in your sort of family life now? Yeah, so Emmy is actually really quite aware now. So she's just turned five in July. Um, and we've always sort of talked about him. We've got pictures up of him. Um, and we've never kind of like pushed it um, with her. Um, but she's just really aware of him. So we've got um, his ashes are like under um, a stone in like a church garden, um, which is next to where Andy's dad's um, there too. So we thought it'd be nice to have them together. Um, so we go there and Emmy calls it Lucas's step. So she always says, can we go to Lucas's step? And we'll take flowers and things like that. But, you know, she knows he died. And yeah, she knows a lot, to be fair. Um, but she just deals with it so well. She often says she really misses him and I wish he could be here and things like that. But she's just she loves to like look at pictures of him and, you know, it's kind of she kind of went through a stage of how why do I miss him when I don't even know him you know which is really hard to explain to a little girl how you know how do you explain that so there's been a few times where I've found it really quite hard to get through because you don't know if you're doing the right thing or not um, by kind of opening them up to it but um yeah we keep everything to age appropriate for her to understand um, but yeah, he's talked of often and when it's his birthdays and things like that, he's included in everything We, you know, on his birthday, we'll always have a day out and they know it's his birthday, which they love, you know, it's something she looks forward to each year, which is really nice. Um, and we'll go visit him at Christmas and things like that. Um, and my friends as well, on the first year he died, they wanted to do something for him. So they, um, adopted a giraffe for him at Chester Zoo, um, so that's kind of something we do each year now. We'll go to Chester Zoo and, yeah, so she she loves that. She sees that as something that it's as if, like, he's, he's with us, you know, which is really lovely. Um, Esme's kind of still not really got any awareness of what's kind of happened or anything. She's only two, so. But, yeah, um, yeah, I feel lucky. Like, she she loves to, like, talk about him and things, which is really lovely. And you also have a small business creating some really beautiful gifts and cards with the Baby Loss Community Mind. So when and why did you decide to start When You Wish Upon a Star? Thank you. Um, yeah, so after I've always done art. I did art at school um, and everything like that. Um, and after he died, I decided to like get creative again because it was something I could focus on to pass the time without and it was one of the things when when I was doing it I wasn't thinking about anything that had happened you know I was just solely focusing on that and it was kind of like the time out that I needed to get out of my own head um which was really good so I painted a butterfly for him in his nursery 
that's what I did. Um, and yeah, I just, when we'd got his hand and footprints from the hospital, his ink prints, um, there was, I was kind of looking online for things that I could maybe get as a keepsake. And there was just nothing at the time which I could have bought, which we would have liked. Um, we've had, we've got his hand and foot in a cast, which is really beautiful. But yeah, there was just nothing else really which we could have bought for him. Um, and it just got me thinking, I wonder if there's a way where I can turn these prints into some sort of keepsake. Um, so yeah, that's where When You Wish Upon a Star was born. And the first product I ever made was the foil hand and footprints. Um, and I framed them and I've still, oh, you can see them actually behind me. I've got them in my bedroom. <laughs> um, so yeah, they're his footprints. And that was like my trial run, at, um, seeing if it worked. And yeah, it worked. And then it's just grown from there. So it's it's nice to think of things what people might like to have, you know. Um, I know for myself, every year I love to buy something different for Lucas, whether it's like around his birthday and especially at Christmas, I love to like collect different baubles or ornaments. Um, and that's just where the ideas sort of stemmed from, really. And it's just grown since I started. So I think um, I first started it in... Emmy was just over one, I think. So it was around September in 2016. That's when I finally bit the bullet to actually set up a page on Instagram and start selling through there, um, which is what I did. And yeah, it's it's done really well. And I'm really proud of it. It's something where when I'm doing things, it makes me feel close to Lucas because if it wasn't for him, I'd have never started, started it. I probably would have never had the courage to even start my own business. Um, so yeah, it's something that I really love and it reminds me of Lucas, which is nice. Yeah. And as you say, I think I think there are often things that we do after loss that we wouldn't have done, you know, if that hadn't happened. It's almost a, a bit of a gift, I guess, our children give give back to us to kind of give us the courage to do that. Yeah, a hundred percent. Well, unfortunately, we are about out of time, but thank you so much for coming on and sharing Lucas's story and your experiences of pregnancy and parenting after loss. Would you like to finish off by telling people where they can find you and your shop online? Of course. Thank you so much for um, having me on the podcast as well. It's been really lovely to talk about my experience. Um, so you can find my personal page, um, which is abbybradley.x. And my business page is um, when you wish upon a star and it has a dot between every word on there and um, they're both on Instagram I do have a Facebook page for when you wish upon a star also um, and you will find the links for my website and XC shop through both of those pages if you'd like to find them fantastic and I'll put links and I'll put a direct link to the shop as well in the show notes thank so you awesome thank you so much Abby thank you Thank you for listening to this episode of Footprints on Our Hearts. Please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow me on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts and Twitter at Sky's Footprints. For detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for Tommies, please visit our website, footprintsonourhearts.com. <laughs>